Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And in for Adam this week, I'm Angelica Jade Bastian. How did he get here? He was all alone in the woods. I couldn't leave him there to die. You know you're not supposed to go that far. Is he dead? Uh, no. Not yet. Quick. We need to move him to the port. Nicole Kidman in the Sofia Coppola-directed remake of 1971's The Beguiled, the rare Don Siegel-Clint Eastwood movie that seems a perfect fit for Coppola. I don't know. Kidman has dirty Harry was a huge missed opportunity. <laughs> Maybe. Along with Kidman, the movie stars Kirsten Dunst, Elle Fanning, and Colin Farrell. It's set during the Civil War and sees a wounded Union soldier taken in by the residents of a Virginia girls' school. This week on the show, our review of The Beguiled, which won Coppola the Best Director Prize at Cannes earlier this year. Plus, Angelica and I share our top five Sofia Coppola moments. That and more. If you're lucky, well, do you punk. Ahead on Film Spotting. <laughs> Well, I finally make it back after two weeks away, and now Adam's gone for a week. I guess the guy deserves a vacation, too. Filling in for Adam, really excited about this. I'm thrilled to have back Chicago critic Angelica Jade Bastian. Hello, Angelica. Hello, Josh. Great to have you back on the show. And you are, as our regular listeners probably remember from, I think it was last summer when you were on, you're a contributing writer at Vulture, but... You've also written for many other places, The New York Times, The Village Voice, The Atlantic, and Refinery29. Now, last time when you were in the show, I'm afraid we stuck you with a review of Suicide Squad. Oh, <laughs> it wasn't quite fair, but more happily, we were able to share our top five women comic book characters done right. And you had Wonder Woman, the animated version voiced by Carrie Russell. She was on your list. So before we get too far into the show here, I have to ask, how did you like this summer's Wonder Woman? Such a loaded question, Josh. And this isn't the whole show, so yeah. you got to keep this brief. <laughs> well, I'm a huge Wonder Woman fan, and I will say overall, as someone who has been waiting for this film since I was a little girl, I was very pleased with it, except for that last act, which felt cut from a completely different, more boring superhero film. But That's overall, fair. 
I liked it. Sounds like we're somewhat similar in yeah. where we landed on the film. So yeah. good. I'm glad you weren't disappointed. I, yeah. I would have felt terrible about that. <laughs> Wonder Woman, of course, was made by a female director, Patty Jenkins. And we have another female-helmed feature to consider this week, Sofia Coppola's The Beguiled. We're also going to share our top five Sofia Coppola moments later in the show. First, though, let's get to that Beguiled review. The last time Coppola went into the distant past, she had I Want Candy playing in Versailles. What does she bring to Civil War-era Virginia? You're our most unwelcome visitor, and we do not propose to entertain you. You'll find them easily amused. You won't be here long enough for that. How did you end up in this place? Why are you so interested in me? I admire your strength. I'm just trying to give them what they need to survive in these times. If you could have anything in the world, what would it be? To be taken far away from here. Come with me. He seems to be a sensitive person. Does he? Sophia Coppola's The Beguiled is just opening this weekend here in Chicago, Angelica, but it's already had quite the journey. First came its May triumph at Cannes, where Coppola won the Best Director Award, and friend of the show David Ehrlich called it the mustiest and most conventionally entertaining film of Coppola's brilliant career. That praise was followed by a bit of a backlash leading up to its stateside release, including a slate piece by former film spotting advisory board member Coria Todd criticizing the film for ignoring the historical reality of slavery. This all seems to be par for the course for Coppola, who has long had both ardent fans and equally ardent detractors. So I'm curious where you stand on her as a filmmaker, Angelica. Is her work overrated or underrated, or is it simply understandably divisive? And where does The Beguiled, in which a wounded Union soldier recuperates as a prisoner-slash-patient in a Southern girls' boarding school, come into that equation for you? Overall, I think Sofia Coppola has one of the most distinctive voices of a young ish modern director. I think she's really fascinating, especially her approach to white womanhood and her obsession with femininity and girlhood and that sort of stage in a young woman's life between being a girl and a woman. Mm. And I think that's really fascinating. And I appreciate her voice and her aesthetics. And I always feel like I'm really brought into a swooning romantic world, even if the ideas themselves aren't romantic. I think she has a very romantic perspective, and I appreciate that. Overall, I've never been fully enamored with her work, but The Beguiled really had me under its spell. Hmm. Very interested in that. And I think part of it was because I could totally tell it was filmed in Louisiana. Okay, even though set in Virginia, but yes. Yeah, when I saw that set in Virginia and I was watching the film, I cackled to myself. I was like, this is Louisiana. (laughs) Because you're from there, right? Or have family? My mother's family and my mom, are they're from Lauraville, Louisiana. Okay. And so when I say I'm going home, what I'm really telling people I'm, is I'm spending time between New Orleans and Lauraville. Okay. I'm from Miami, though. Got it. So how did that inform your experience of the film that you didn't find that jarring that this is, you know, obviously? Because I feel like... Her movies, you're right. Obviously, Marie Antoinette and The Beguiled even more so. It's set in, what is it, 1864, Virginia, Mm -hmm. I think. But it's really not. It's set in Coppola land, that place you were describing, which I would agree with. It's this 
mood, this experience of a certain time in life, a very particular perspective. It's a certain temperament that she captures more so than any particular time and place. So for me, I don't find these historical anomalies jarring or even anomalies in terms of place jarring. It seems to work for whatever she needs to create that mood that she's going for. Was it something similar for you? Yeah, I agree. And I think for me also, I don't go to film for realism, historical or otherwise. I go for emotional truths. So as long as I feel the characters have a strong sense of self and I can buy how they look at the world, because that's what I think Coppola does really well. These aren't supposed to be slices of a time and a place that we know of and have read in history books necessarily, but it's looking at these worlds through the eyes of these young women. I completely buy how she frames things because of that. Yeah, so for me, you're essentially getting a similar perspective that you would in what was it, 1970s suburbia Mm -hmm. from the Virgin Suicides that you would get in the France of Marie Antoinette that you're getting here in the Civil War era of The Beguiled. And that's not to say that this perspective is repetitive. Mm -hmm. I really liked The Beguiled. It's up there at the top of her films for me, and it's because I do see it as something of an advancement on these sorts of characters she's Mm -hmm. been interested in and fleshing them out, especially looking back for our top five, as I did on a lot of scenes of The Virgin Suicides, which I do like. But this movie is much more particular about the individual experiences going on among these young girls and women at this school, whereas The Virgin Suicides was a little bit more... Those sisters were all kind of one being, in a sense. Yeah, which is interesting. It is interesting. And I I think that's probably what she meant to do, is make it sort of a communal consideration. But there is a progression here where, you know, you understand, or at least I did, the particular desires that... The movie is all about desire, Mm -hmm. for me, the Beguiled. But it's not just this communal or maybe ethereal desire. It's something very specific for Nicole Kidman's headmistress, where she is. There's the great sponge bath scene oh, where I she kind of comes alive there while Colin Farrell I is recuperating. <laughs> but it's not just sexual for her. There's yeah. also this notion of companionship. Mm-hmm. And so then you look at someone like Kirsten Dunst's teacher, and she almost has this desire for a different social status. She's mm-hmm. stuck here in this place. And so John McDurney, the soldier played by Farrell, represents that promise to her of having a different life. That's her desire. Yeah. And then you have Al Fanning, who is, Ooh. you know, just she's just alive, right? Yeah. She's young and alive. Yes, there's a sexual component to it as well. But for me, it was almost more that she stood out as one of the few girls there who had her own inner life, and it wasn't until he arrived that she let that loose, you know? I loved how she would just hang over a chair yeah. so, like, lazily and unconcerned. Or one of my favorite moments is when she's raking out mm. in the yard and can barely manage to pull the rake across the ground because she doesn't want to be there. When he comes around, she comes to life. So that's a different sort of desire. Hers is almost for adulthood that she's longing for, and he represents a step towards mm-hmm. that. So all of that is to say for me, the film was a much richer consideration of character, mm-hmm. even though it uses, Coppola used the same tools she always does to express that character. And and I appreciated that quite a bit about the film. Oh, I definitely agree. It was also nice to see Coppola sort of turn her focus onto a woman that is a little bit older. Because yeah, she tends true. to focus really on girls mm-hmm. or girlish women who are still really young. 
So it was really fascinating to kind of see the sort of age dynamics that happened between Nicole Kidman, Kirsten Dunst, and Elle Fanning. It's like different chapters in a woman's life and where your currency is completely different, where your values are different, where your desires are really different. I did interpret Elle Fanning's character very differently than you did. Okay, let's hear it. Well, with Elle Fanning and the raking scene, I did think a lot about privilege and the loss of privilege and innocence in a way. Okay. And so I think that Colin Farrell's character is almost like a blank slate she can project her desires on as a girl who's not even sure what womanhood means. And so she's kind of playing around with that. And she needs him to be sort of a passive figure, which is why I think she came to kiss him when he was basically asleep. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that. That makes sense. And it also brings to mind... The character that Farrell plays in general, you said, is a blank slate. And I think he does play his charms. You know, he's not completely uninvolved here. Oh, no. But it's really more as a survival tool. There's an interesting distinction for me from the 71 version, which I was able to watch, where Eastwood was much more wolfish to me. And in, in his And scuzzy, yeah. And, and I think that's because that movie was more worried about the male threat. Mm-hmm. And this movie is more concerned with the nature of the feminine desire. That's the priority. And so really what you need then from the feral performance is sure an element of danger is there. And again, he is charming because there has to be something that they're drawn to and he's handsome. Uh, but really it is what they're going to project onto him, what he represents for each of them. So it's a it's an interesting and clever performance by Farrell by having to walk that line mm-hmm. where he needs to be this object of desire, but not take over the movie, but still be at the service of all the other performances. And I think he manages to balance that. But what, what did you think of his performance? I actually think Colin Farrell is really fascinating because he's one of the few actors working today who is one really good actor and two is very beautiful and understands the dynamics of being an object of desire as a man Hmm. and how different that is and to being passive isn't exactly the right word but sort of being guided by the desires of everybody else around you and he's really his interaction with the camera is really fascinating to me and I sort of kept thinking about Elizabeth Taylor partially because they did have a literal relationship at the end of her life, which I need to know what her game was because <sighs> I don't... This is the first time hearing about oh, any of this. look it up. He had an interview on Ellen about it. And okay. I was so shocked and amazed and in awe of Elizabeth Taylor, as I always am. <laughs> but there's... He sort of smolders in a way that I find really fascinating. Well, in all my travels, I've never come across such a delicate beauty as yours. Tell me something, will you? Miss Morrow, it's okay. If you could have anything, what's your biggest wish? If you could have anything in the world, what would it be? Anything. Yeah, anything. To be taken far away from me. It's like he adjusts his performance and he's sort of... The best way I can put it is he reminds me of a really good con artist where he Mm. adjusts his performance depending on his audience. He's a man at home anywhere in the world. 
is the way I would kind of put it. It's really fascinating just seeing how he molds to what the women want. So when he's with Nicole Kidman, he asks you know her if she had a companion before the war and admires her strength and her steeliness. Yeah. With Kirsten Dunst, he becomes the knight in shining armor yes. that she so greatly desires. For Elle Fanning, he becomes sort of like a schoolyard crush. And he's mm-hmm. sweet. And he's approachable. And then with the younger girls, he's almost like an older brother. Yeah, that's what I was going to add. The, the youngest, Amy, who first discovers him in the woods... I especially like Una Lawrence is the actress mm. there. I especially like how he's her buddy, right? There, yeah. It's how he uh, physically deals with them as well because I think he oh. kind of taps her on the shoulder or nudges her. You know, these these little like buddy exactly. movements compared to the ones that the ways he treats even physically the other girls and the women. You make me think of his performance in The Lobster too. Oh, definitely. Where he's willing to put his physical features at the service of what that movie needs yeah. where, you know, he's this, he's got the, the gut and yeah. he's kind of this schlub a little bit but mm-hmm. still has a certain appeal to some of the women that he meets there. So yeah, I think Farrell is really going through a rich phase of his career right now, and he does add a lot to The Beguiled. I think it's a great showcase for Nicole Kidman, someone Mm -hmm. who I honestly... I wouldn't say written off, but maybe was not as excited in recent years about performances of hers as maybe I should have been because she uses some of her tools here as well to, you know, that iciness is a word you hear a lot attributed to her and a certain remove and she certainly has that here as the woman who's in control of this school but the way she opens those cracks the scene we talked about with the sponge bath and she has to you know splash water on her face mm-hmm. opens those cracks to let us see the woman inside and again the desires that are going on within her so you mentioned the Elle Fanning raking scene and how the connection there with privilege, and maybe that's a good place to return to the criticism the film has received that Coria Todd wrote about for Slate and other critics have mentioned as well. Privilege is a, a phrase that has been thrown at a lot of Coppola's films. Here in particular, the concern had been that there's a line early on about the slaves ran away or went away, and that is the only acknowledgement that slavery even existed in this time period in American history. Now, it's interesting to me, having watched the 71 version, because that's much more interwoven into the narrative where there is a slave character. Mm-hmm. And again, while that film, I think, is very interested in different things about this scenario, and she is also seen as a victim or potential victim of male threat, because I think that's what that movie is about, at least there's that presence there. There isn't that presence at all in Coppola's The Beguiled. She's getting a lot of heat for it. How'd you take that? So I have a lot to say about this subject matter, especially okay. as a black woman from the South, where even if black people aren't around, we're still a parent. Hmm. And so I have a lot of issues with the criticism about race that have sort of swelled up around the movie very quickly, sometimes from people who hadn't even seen it, but were just offended by the lack of at least one black character. Yeah. And I actually had a lot of problems with that slate piece and some other things Corey has said about The Beguiled. But I kept, you know, my mouth shut because I was like, let me actually see the movie. Sure, of course. Uh, yeah, before I jump to any conclusion, which is something I kept seeing people do. And so what what is what did the movie give you? When you when you saw the movie, what did you take away from it as far as this is concerned? I think it is heavily myopic to say that race is not apparent in this movie just because there isn't a black character. Hmm. Because I think being from the South, being a black woman 
who has walked by plantations I can assume my ancestors have worked on. Black people are always there in this country, even if we're not there, because we have built these buildings. The fact that the garden was in complete disarray to me was one of the signs that they do not have their usual help. I see. Okay. The fact that they didn't have their hoop skirts. There's, you know, certain things that were missing from their usual rituals because there was a lack of a black person to do it for them, specifically a black woman. So that in a way that absence becomes a weird commentary in and of itself about the ways that white women insulate themselves from their privilege and blind them from their privilege. And so there's two things to note with this. I think one, in a culture that's so obsessed with auteur theory, we're going to, of course, look at the director and their intent, I think sometimes a little bit more than we should. Hmm. Because watching the film, Sofia Coppola may have wanted to create a movie about the interior lives of young and older women in Civil War South, Virginia, although I was about to slip up and call it Louisiana. Mm -hmm. But to me, the movie came across as an indictment of the way white women insulate themselves and the fantasies that people believe about the old South. Yeah. I mean, you kind of hear it when there's this moment where Nicole Kidman and Colin Farrell are talking after one of these dinners they have. And she gets wistful talking about how beautiful the house used to be and all the women dressed up. And in a weird way, this film seems like a time capsule for that sort of loss of desire of this specific time period and what it offered those women. Of course, a movie so obsessed with their perspectives of themselves and seeing themselves as the hero of their own story would not have a black woman in it. Yeah. That breaks the fantasy. So you're talking about a level of self-critique that you found there. I think I would agree that there's more of that in The Beguiled than it's been given credit for now. I don't think also, Coppola's aware, though. Th- that's exactly, where, that's exactly where I was going because <laughs> I, you know, as, as much as I love auteur theory and participate in it myself, I think there are limitations. And this may be one of those cases. I do think there's another progression here, though, mm-hmm. from something like The Virgin Suicides and even Lost in Translation, which I like and I think is her best film. But I don't think that movie is as self-aware as certain elements of The Beguiled I is. Agree. Now, I'm not saying that this is some sort of personal growth on the part of Coppola, but for whatever reason, whether it's the collaborators or just life experience or the story she's chosen to tell, I think there is a growing level of self awareness slash critique about this interior state of young womanhood that she is so obsessed about. And I, you mentioned the word myopia or myopic, and that's how I describe her films as well, but not necessarily negatively. You, I, you absolutely cannot deny that these are myopic films. Their lens is so narrow. I agree. And while there are limitations to that, I, I think the line about slavery is clumsy in The Beguiled. Mm-hmm. I think some of the concerns that have been expressed are valid. But at the same time, and, you know, think about something like Marie Antoinette, where the, the French Revolution is off screen. I mean, that, yeah. that's, yeah, that there's something unfortunate about that. But at the same time, this narrow lens that she creates with her films gets me in 
the moment in a sensual instant in a way that few filmmakers do. And it's because she has, she's not worried about anything else going on. She's worried about the temperature in the air. Mm -hmm. She's worried about the taste of the food that they're eating. The texture. The texture of the clothes that they're wearing. The music maybe they're listening to or is playing in their heads. And that requires a distinct, narrow focus to make us feel like we're there as well. And so it's a give and take. I think it's, you know, maybe a difficulty of her personal style. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you took that away and asked her to make a more expansive vision of this era, we would get something a little more generic and we wouldn't get something as uh, as particular and as of the moment as The Beguiled was, at least for me, as a film experience. Yeah, I want to make two or three other points. One, yes, I don't think Coppola was cognizant of the fact that she tripped into a very interesting critique of white womanhood by not having slave characters and having it be so insular and myopic, which I don't mean that as an insult either. That's okay, right? It's okay if a movie becomes its own thing and reveals things that maybe the filmmakers didn't intend. Exactly. And that's probably the case here, I think. Yeah, and I think that's why we need to be careful with this obsession with using auteur theory as a lens for criticism so consistently and taking what directors say. Because if I did that, I would never watch classic film because Hmm. so many of those directors were racist and did not, you know... There was no presence of a black woman like me in them. Ira Madison, uh, the third, wrote for the Daily Beast a really interesting piece that critiqued Sofia Coppola's myopic stance as a director, while also acknowledging that she should not be doing a film that deals with black characters. Right, in that's this the setting. other thing. Would you really want that? No. You know what? <laughs> we should be championing for women of color to, to have make the that op- movie exactly. And then my third point is. You can make a movie that's incisive about race without having any people of color present. If anything, I think more white directors and white writers need to indict whiteness. Hmm. And I think there's this idea that race discussions can only be a present when there's a person of color present. And I think one of the problems is whiteness has gone by unpoliced and treated as sort of the baseline and never questioned and never really talked about or interrogated But I think there's an opportunity to really do that. That's something I'm really interested in doing. And it's actually weirdly something I was thinking about watching Baby Driver and John Hamm's performance. Oh, okay. I'm jealous I haven't seen it yet. So maybe we'll get into that a little bit later in the show when that comes up with our poll question. Another element of The Beguiled I wanted to ask you about, though, and we'll have to dance a little bit around spoilers Mm -hmm. here, is the shift it takes from what I would say psychological drama to psychological horror. I I took it that way. Um, how did you take that shift? Do you think that worked? Because that, for me, speaking of Coppola and as an auteur, was different material mm-hmm. for her that she hasn't really dealt with before. Do you think uh, she handled it as well as this more familiar terrain? I definitely think she handled it really well. To me, first and foremost, The Beguiled is a Southern Gothic. Yeah, Southern sure. Gothic can Makes have sense. elements of horror and the grotesque, which is what I think the film does surprisingly well, especially for someone so interested in beauty. So I think there was this really interesting juxtaposition between these somewhat grotesque moments, sometimes bloody moments, sometimes harrowing moments, and then these moments of these young women getting together for dinner Mm -hmm. and like putting on their corsets and putting on ribbons as bracelets because they don't have jewelry. Very, very, very dynamic sense of tension, very vivid. 
Yeah, and there's some dark humor there as well. Yeah, it's I very liked funny. How she paired off the obsession with beauty at the start when it's more of a psychological drama. And then makes it, she like twists it and curdles it when it becomes something more horror. So take, for example, the frequent insert shots we get at the beginning of the young girls learning embroidery. So Mm -hmm. this is a thing of beauty. And then increasingly, stitching becomes more associated with wounds. And and let's just say worse. Yeah. So I like how she twists that. The dinners you mentioned early on, they try to impress him by sitting down for a fancy dinner and they're Mm -hmm. all dolled up. And then let's say another later dinner is echoed, but they're, they look more like they're attending a funeral wake or something like that. Very somber. And so it's <laughs> almost as if when I, I think that turn works for her because she doesn't completely negate these other concerns that the earlier portions of the mm-hmm. film had or her other pictures have had, but uses a way again to curdle them and twist them to the direction that the beguiled is taking. I do want to say that I think it's, Amazing the way Kirsten Dunst and Sofia Coppola uh, collaborate. Yeah. And I think they're one of the great examples of star director dynamics in the modern age because they've worked together for such a long time through different chapters of each of their lives. And there's a really good interview with Coppola at the Village Voice that sort of talks about that and how they have shorthand. And I think this is such a textured and beautiful and sort of wounded performance from Kirsten Dunst. That's a good word for it. And it's different, really, than what we've seen her do for Coppola before, right? She was quite memorably the Elle Fanning part, you could say, in The Virgin Suicides. Obviously, there are variations on what they're doing there. Um, But yeah, here she is the the reticent one, Mm -hmm. the yeah, wounded is the right word, and it's not what I think of as a Kirsten Dunn's performance. It's reserved in different ways and also quite good. I think everyone is really good across the board nope, perfect. in this cast. And yeah. again, for the various tones that they're trying to hit and the shift in those tones, I think that is another impressive element of The Beguiled. All right, so two favorable opinions here on The Beguiled. It is currently in limited release. We want to hear your take on it, of course. So if you've seen it, whether or not you agree or disagree with us, send those thoughts to feedback at filmspotting.net. All right, the Film Spotting Top 5 is next, and I wore my anachronistic Chuck Taylor All-Stars for the occasion. It's our favorite Sofia Coppola moments when we come back. Stay with us. I'm 
gonna need you behind the wheel again. One more job and I'm done. One more job and we're straight. That's from Edgar Wright's Baby Driver, which opened earlier this week and is, according to Metacritic anyway, the best-reviewed wide release of 2017. Adam and I are going to get to a review of that next week. I have yet to see it. Angelica, you have, and you're a fan? I am a bigger fan than I expected. I really enjoyed it. Because you're a fan of Edgar Wright as well? or Not really. Not really. Okay. Sorry, Edgar Wright fans. I find him enjoyable, but I have never had the desire to rewatch any of his films. Okay. They're cute, is how I like to put it. Oh, man. Cute. Now you really, you didn't have to anger <laughs> Edgar Wright fans by saying that. But Baby Driver, though. A lot of fun. Okay. And I was not expecting to dig it, but it it's so propulsive and has so much energy and it's such fluid camera work and it's just a really fun ride. Sounds great. I can't wait to check it out. And then Adam and I will talk about it next week. Baby Driver, as I said, the top rated wide release of 2017. Adam and I are going to take a look at the year so far in a couple of weeks. We'll have a little bit more on how and where we're going to do that in just a bit. But in anticipation of that top five, the top five films of 2017 so far, we want to know what you think is the best of the year at this point with our new poll question. Here are the options we're going to give you. The best film of 2017 so far is... Baby Driver, The Beguiled, Get Out, Logan, The Lost City of Z, Personal Shopper, Wonder Woman, or... Other. We'll let you choose Other if your favorite film of the year so far is not on this list. Angelica, is your favorite film of 2017 so far on this list? I don't think I have one yet, honestly. You haven't, you haven't had a top five facing you that yeah, you have to make this decision, so huh? so daunting. I hate top fives. <laughs> All right. Well, you did tease that, and we can't get into it now, even though I'd really love to. You're not a huge fan of Get Out. I don't know anyone who's not a huge fan of Get Out. So just tell me this. Can we find like a review of it or did you write about this anywhere? That... Nope. I have not written a bit because to say I don't only dislike Get Out, I actually actively hate the film and find the idea that it's trenchantly discussing race laughable. All right. Put that down on paper or on digital somewhere so that I can read it because I do like to read the contrary opinions. We're going to move on for now, though. Looking ahead. At that best of the year so far list, Adam and I are going to put together. The show won't post until July 21, but that's because we're going to record that top five live. And only three and a half hours from Chicago. So Chicago listeners, come on, show your loyalty. Drive on out. It's going to be our first live show outside of Chicago. No, not New York, not L.A., not Austin, not Minneapolis, but Spring Green, Wisconsin. This is about an hour west of Madison. The population, 1,600. They've been clamoring for a film spotting live show. Actually, this is the home of producer Sam Van Halgren and also the home of a fantastic independent bookstore, Arcadia Books. I've been there the last few summers, a favorite spot with my family. So we are heading there to record this show on Sunday, July 16. I'm also going to be doing a promotional gig there for my new book, Movies Are Prayers, which is out now. So we'll do a little bit of a book talk probably before the live recording, and then we'll do our top five list there right in the bookstore. This is Sunday, July 16, 2 p.m., is when things are going to get started there. It's open to the public, but again, this is a small independent bookstore, so space is limited. If you want some more details about all of that, you can go to the events page at filmspotting.net. 
Okay, Angelica, your favorite part of the show. I know this is why you agree to come on Film Spotting. <laughs> Massacre Theater. Should we do it? Are you ready? I'm ready. That, that sounds, that's ex- exactly the right attitude for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and then listeners get a chance at winning a prize. A couple of weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. I found it here by the statue. That is the likeness of the goddess of love. It's very remarkable. A sword, eh? Yes. But this is no ordinary sword. Well, it's a strange metal. It's neither brass nor iron. It's, it's like no metal that I have ever seen. By the gods. There's a shield. And over there's a helmet. I was right to say by the gods. Who else could make a sword that slices through solid marble? without leaving the slightest blemish on the blade. If the sword can do that, then what about the helmet and the shield? That was Harry Hamlin and Burgess Meredith in 1981's Clash of the Titans. It was written by Beverly Cross, directed by Desmond Davis. We did that scene during our show that also included a review of Wonder Woman and our top five religious experiences at the movies. As for the tie-ins, recent Massacre Theater winner Jay Becker had those. The tie-in, of course, he said, Greek mythology, which has a strong presence in both Clash and Wonder Woman. We got a lot of incorrect entries for this Massacre Theater performance. You think it would have been obvious, but I think, and yes, this shows what happened. A lot of people suggested we were doing Wayne's World. I made probably the incorrect choice of a schwing sound for the sword clanging the marble. I thought it was true to the text when I watched the scene and heard Mm -hmm. it. That's what I heard. But it threw listeners off. So sorry to you, Wayne's World fans who entered Massacre Theater that way. We did get many, many correct entries as well, including our winner, Angelica reach into the film spotting hat and who do you have there as our winner our winner is glenn graff from buffalo grove illinois congratulations glenn email us at feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your prize okay let's do it let's get to this week's massacre theater Is that everything? I mean, it seemed like you said quite a bit more than that. It is very gracious of you to play along with our silly reindeer games here, Angelica. It was fun last time. I'm sure this will be fun as well. There are tie-ins, some pretty obvious ones in the Mm -hmm. text itself to The Beguiled. Love it when listeners find more, so can't wait to hear those. I am going to get things started here, so I need the action cue from you. Give me a moment to get into character. And uh, then let it roll. And action. Hey, wake up, you. There's troops coming. Blue or gray? They gray like us. Let's say hello to them and then get going. Hurrah! Hurrah for the Confederacy! Hurrah! Down with General Grant! Hurrah for General... What's the name? Lee. Lee. Lee! Lee! Ha! Yay! God is with us because he hates the Yanks, too! Hurrah! God's not on our side because he hates idiots also. And scene. Now, you told me you were going to channel someone else. Were you doing it there? Yes. Okay, okay, sorry. Then since you were channeling someone else as this prominent actor you were playing, if listeners 
can guess correctly not only who you were playing but also who you were channeling. I don't know. They might they'll have to get an extra film spotting T-shirt or something. I highly doubt anyone will be able to figure this out. But can I give them a hint? Yeah, go for it. A very, very, very small hint. The show mm-hmm. that I'm channeling a character from is based in my hometown that I mentioned earlier. Okay, if there you, guys you go. Are really listening. <laughs> Get on it. Get on it, film spotting <laughs> listeners. If you know that, or if you just know the film We Massacred. Also, yeah. yeah it, go ahead. Also, if you just follow me on Twitter, you probably have heard me talking about this show a lot because I've been rewatching it. All right. Hints galore there. So you should be able to figure this out. At the very least, if you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Our deadline this time is Monday, July 10. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. So what are you doing here? A couple of things. Taking a break from my wife, forgetting my son's birthday, and uh, getting paid $2 million to endorse a whiskey when I could be doing a play somewhere. Oh. But the good news is the whiskey works. Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray you just heard in 2003's Lost in Translation. Nearly 15 years later, a movie that still looms large over the rest of Sofia Coppola's filmography. Before we get to our top five Coppola scenes, Angelica, let's see just how large it looms. A couple weeks back, we asked you to name Coppola's best film. We gave listeners two options. They could pick Lost in Translation or Other, any other. So includes The Virgin Suicides, Marie Antoinette, Somewhere and The Bling Ring, and of course, The Beguiled, if some listeners have been able to see that already. And the results, this was a pounding other, only 26% of the vote, lost in translation, received 74% of the vote. I probably could have guessed that it would have won. Does it surprise you that it was that easy of a win? It doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, it's the one people talk about. It's the one they remember. In my mind, I do think that it is her best film. We got some feedback to this poll, the one-sided poll. Eddie in Reseda, California, just said, I want to rob. The Bling Ring is one of the best movies of the decade so far. You were just asking between recording, Angelica, if people really like The Bling Ring, Eddie likes it quite a bit. We also heard from Michelle Foy. And Michelle Foy wrote in Marie Antoinette. She says, not just my favorite of Coppola's, but also her best Most masterfully crafted film. I remember seeing a published version of the script for Marie Antoinette in a bookstore once and saw that the ending initially had a note along the lines of fade to black as the sound of the guillotine dropping echoes. I am so glad Coppola never actually followed through with that choice. What makes Coppola such a unique and satisfying filmmaker for me are her patience and keen eye for elegant yet effortless stylistic choices and nowhere... Have those been better expressed than in Marie Antoinette? And another vote here for an other film. Michael Loker in El Cerrito, California, chose Somewhere. Lost in Translation, he says, is a lovely, sophisticated film, and I completely understand why it's generally Coppola's most admired. The one I've seen the most is the effervescent, witty, and altogether terrific Marie Antoinette. 
But unless the beguile blows me away, I'll likely go to my grave defending somewhere. Something of a disregarded stepchild for many, but in my estimation, a total gem. Coppola has a wonderful knack for observing the emotional lives of her characters, but she also favors a mannered style that creates a hypnotic distance. If the stylish translation and Antoinette feel a little impersonal at times, the understated somewhere is overflowing with humanity. It's the director's most intimate film. Stephen Dorff's character might be a Hollywood actor who whisks his daughter from the Chateau Marmont to Milan, but with his spotty grooming, his social awkwardness, his busted arm, and his fundamental lack of charisma, he's immediately human and a little pitiable. The people in Sofia Coppola's films often seem transfixed as life passes them by. Here, however, is a curveball. Johnny Marco, bored and boring, sets down his privilege cocktail to simply enjoy time with his kid, and I find it honest and emotionally engaging as hell. I admire the dramatic arc and exotic art-directed veil of Coppola's other projects, but I wish she'd make more pictures like Somewhere. Well, let's find out, Angelica, if Somewhere lands a spot on either of our top five lists as we get into our top five Sofia Coppola scenes. Now, I know we should probably say at the start here that you found this a little challenging because as you revisit some other films, you weren't as enamored with them as maybe you were in your memory or were there any of these you watched for the first time for this list? How'd you go about forming this list? Well, overall with Coppola, I find her a very intriguing director, but I've never been really obsessed or taken by her work. Okay. What surprised me was how much I forgot from these movies. Huh. <laughs> so I, I rewatched Marie Antoinette, and there's certain details I just started to pick up on that I found really fascinating, uh, especially after watching The Beguiled and yeah. seeing how obsessed she is with rituals of okay. femininity. Really fascinating. So a lot of my list picks up on moments that hone in on that. Sounds great. Let's jump right into it. What did you put at number five? So at number five is from The Virgin Suicides. It's about a half hour into the movie when Josh Hartnett, with that ridiculous wig, walks into the school, his jacket flung over his shoulder, and all the women are looking at him. And what intrigues me about that moment is just how it's representative of Coppola's obsession with how women look at the world and how they kind of project their desires onto different figures. And he's a very obvious object of desire in The Virgin Suicides. Yeah, and as I remember it, it's an extended montage, really, doesn't it? Follow him laying in his pool. Yep. And then the a girl brings homework and brownies. Is yeah, that she, part of this scene? Yeah, this girl brings brownies, and he has his, like, towel slung very, very, very low. That's right, yes. I was like, they do that in high school? Did I miss something? <laughs> And the use of music, too. I forget what exactly the song is in that scene. but that's That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So definitely a trait of hers, how she weaves all of that together. So good pick from The Virgin Suicides. That's where I'm going to start as well with my number five, but with a different scene, the homecoming dance. Mm -hmm. Now, as a reminder, this is the movie that it was Coppola's debut, and it's about five sheltered sisters who become this object of group object of fascination for the boys in their 70s suburban neighborhood, and even more so after the youngest sister commits suicide. So this is a rare moment, this homecoming dance scene that I'm picking, where the girls are let out of the house by their parents to the homecoming dance, no less, of all places to let them go. And the sister played by Kirsten Dunst is announced as the homecoming queen. And it's as if these girls come to life for the first time. And they're they're a little unsure of themselves earlier in the sequence, but when she's mm-hmm. announced and they're kind of like accepted into this social gathering, mm-hmm. they just come to life. And Coppola perfectly captures that 
sort of effervescence that you would feel. So it's the music that we were just talking about that's coming into play here. The lighting, the use of props, the balloons that come down Mm -hmm. from the ceiling, how the characters interact with them. All of that really combines and it captures, as I was saying in our Beguiled review, sometimes what she does best is just a singular mood. Mm -hmm. And to me, this scene is elation. You know, the elation that these girls are feeling. So we're both starting our lists with the beginning of Coppola's career. The Virgin Suicides. Which way are you going to go for your number four? I'm actually going to choose something from The Beguiled. Fair not enough. a spoiler, but sort of harkens to this idea of ritualism through femininity. And there's two really interesting dinner scenes. I won't spoil it for you guys. Don't worry. What's most interesting to me is what happens right before each of those dinner scenes and how the women get ready and, and young girls and seeing them lace up their corsets, putting pieces of fabric and ribbon around their wrists, trying to basically ape what they think of as being a woman and how it changes over the course of the film when we have the second dinner scene. It's just really beautiful mirroring of growth for these women. And I thought it was just really fascinating. And I just really love the ritual of getting ready myself And I think it's amazing that Coppola is so interested in the interior lives of women. She hones in on these very small details with care and without condescension. She thinks that girlhood is as worthy of study as anything else. And I think that's what I really love about her. And rewatching the films, I liked moments like that from her work. So I'm right there with you. I have The Beguiled at number four, and I went with the exact same scene, actually, because it was it's incorporating, as you said, all of these things she's always been interested in, but how it would play out not only in this specific setting, but to these individual characters. This is an ensemble scene, but we get a sense of how each of them are experiencing it exactly through what you talked about, what they're wearing, what they're eating. I wrote in my review of The Beguiled how if you want to know how a Coppola character is feeling, don't listen to what they're saying. Don't listen to – you don't get any exposition about Mm -hmm. them. Watch what they're wearing and watch what they're eating. And usually that is going to tell you. That's how they express themselves and their inner lives are in those things, which sounds reductionistic, but that's how we all are. I mean, and that's the sort of detail that cinema can capture. So I think it absolutely comes to the fore here in this dinner scene where McBurney, the Colin Farrell character, joins them. It's They look like overripe Easter eggs in some of these dresses that they wear. It's just so overdone. And I like how they make a fuss over the lavish spread on the table, too. Oh, yes. Isn't this the scene where one of them, it might be Kirsten Dunn's character, is sure to point out that it's her recipe that was used? Yes. Yeah. That moment, that first dinner scene, has a lot of really sharp humor. And it specifically feels like the kind of humor I'm used to hearing from Southern women who say, bless your heart. Okay. <laughs> and it's very specific how they're kind of jockeying for his attention by mentioning all the labor they put into it. It's my recipe. I picked the apples. Yeah, yeah. And it's more the fight between these actual girls and women that's interesting than Colin Farrell himself, who is delighted, though, and is just like— sure cracking up literally right eating it up yeah <laughs> exactly yeah and um it, it's it's true it's kind of a passive aggressiveness mm-hmm. and there's a shift there too where the women and girls start to turn against each other 
And then the movie turns where they go a different direction. Yes. All right, we'll leave that there. How about your number three Coppola moment? So my number three comes from Marie Antoinette. And there's a lot of really great moments and images from this film. So it was really hard to pick one. But again, I think because of watching The Beguiled really recently, I'm kind of obsessed with how these characters dress and how they're clothed. And there's a moment very, not just really a moment, but a scene really early in uh, Marie Antoinette when she's traveling from Austria to France and she has to go through that sort of tent fixture. She has to take off everything she's wearing, everything that's a sign of her past life in Austria to become a sort of girl woman. She's not really a woman yet, but you it's a very sharp change in how she dresses, even how she stands and presents herself. And the moment when she kind of walks out on the side of France in this beautiful blue dress, I was just like, I don't know, I was just really taken by it. And just the change in Kirsten Dunst's posture because of just wearing just a more elaborate, different gown with all these different fixtures to keep her in place. It was just really... I think beautiful depiction of how clothing can affect identity. Sure. Yeah. Another instance of costuming projecting inner life or at least inner experience. Oh, definitely. That I I considered, too, for a scene from Marie Antoinette. I'm going to go with a different film, though, for my number three. It comes from The Bling Ring, Mm -hmm. and it's The Long Distance Robbery. So this movie's from 2013. It's based on the true story of a group of California teens who burglarized a string of celebrity homes around L.A., and this was about 2009, I think, when this was happening. So a lot of these robberies are what you'd probably expect. They're Coppola parties. They're celebratory. Mm -hmm. They're putting us in that ecstatic mood of these young people who have pulled off these robberies and are sometimes trying on the celebrities' clothes, basically being them for Mm -hmm. a few moments. And it puts us in that experience the way she can do so well. But then there's this scene, which is... Completely different. It's a long, slow zoom to depict the robbery of Audrina Partridge's house. It begins really far away. It's like a distant establishing shot. And we can see these two figures just slipping into the house. And we slowly, slowly, really slowly zoom in. Like one of these zooms where you hardly notice it until Mm -hmm. you realize, oh, the house is now filling the frame. But that's as close as we get. Mm -hmm. By that point, they've rifled through all the rooms and they're making their way out. And the scene ends there. Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting about this one is that it's such an anomaly for Coppola. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's more – it's a moment of detachment when I usually experience that we're completely in the moment with her characters. We're right there alongside them. And this just stands apart where it's observational. It's removed. The characters as a result come across as uh, little furtive. They're, they're even insignificant. So I don't know why. You know, I, I probably need to spend more time thinking about why at this point – or in this movie, she wants to distance her camera from those characters. Like, what's mm-hmm. being said there? We talked in our Beguiled review about, is there some sort of self-awareness in her, maybe not in her as a person, but her as a filmmaker, in her films growing? Is The Beguiled a turning point there where we're starting mm-hmm. to take a step back from those moment-to-moment experiences? But for whatever reason, it's a really remarkable moment in her films that stands apart for being so different from the other ones. Oh, I definitely agree, especially because I think Coppola's defining feature as a director is her intimacy. Mm. So to have a moment like that completely like 
Yeah, not intimate at all, really. Yeah, I mean, it's clinical almost. Clinical is yeah, that makes sense, and it's almost as it's depicting an invasion of intimacy too Mm -hmm. is interesting. So yeah, maybe there's something there. So that gets us to our number two picks. What did you have for your number two Coppola moment? Oh, this was so hard. So I'm going to choose just a line from The Virgin Suicide. Fair enough. Where, you know, like the older Trip Fontaine, originally played by Josh Hartnett, like he's been, they're doing the interviews like about how they felt about these girls. And he describes Lux, Kirsten Dunst's character, as a still point in a turning world. And I think that can be used to describe pretty much every female character in Sofia Coppola's work. You know, that's perfect. And at first I was thinking, okay, a line of dialogue. You don't think of her necessarily as a writer or a dialogue writer. And maybe that came from the original source novel. But it does describe exactly what it's almost like she took that as a model for here's how my movie should exactly. look as well. So you see uh, maybe a perfect pairing of source material and filmmaker there very early on in her career. Yeah, I just thought it was a very evocative line, and it was a line that jumped out just because I think it can be used to describe her approach to setting and character and perspective, because that's what makes Coppola, I think, such a distinctive director, is her intimacy and her obsession with really getting into the skin of her characters and really seeing everything through their eyes to the point where this isn't supposed to be a recreation of reality but a recreation of almost somebody's memory of what happened. And so that line just really jumped out at me, and I thought it was just a really beautiful line, too. Yeah, good pick. All right, number two, I'm getting to my favorite Coppola film, Lost in Translation. Sorry to be so conventional by naming it that way, but it certainly offered the most moments to pick from for me, I thought. And I ended up landing in the same place as listener Jeff Milo, who left this voicemail. Hey, film spotting. This is Jeff Milo from Ferndale, Michigan, calling about the Sofia Coppola scenes. I know a lot of people are going to tell you about Lost in Translation. I'm sure the obvious scenes, like the muffled whisper or maybe that quiet moment that they have in the hallway. But to me, the nexus of the film is is the does it get easier scene. Uh, I can't say enough about it, uh, particularly that it's, it's a really fascinating study in body language from these two actors who are lying down and kind of barely moving. Um, If you play the clip on the air, uh, the regrettable thing is that the frequency of Bill Murray's blinking won't be audible, but the, uh, the often remarked upon subtleties of his acting style are, are really concentrated so powerfully uh, in this scene. And I think, I think Johansson plays it great as well in terms of being kind of curious and, attempting compassionate at the same time but uh uh there's there's such a stunning sense for pacing like this is how people talk when they're exhausted but can't fall asleep or you know this is how people talk late late into the night you know when it's quiet but uh the sentiments that he shares about his life 30 years advanced from hers and the way he kind of shows his wounds but sort of downplays those wounds at the same time because he doesn't want to scare her. He wants to encourage her. I don't know. I could go on. It's packed with subtext. And maybe you should just play the clip instead of me rambling. What about marriage? Does that get easier? That's hard. We used to have a lot of fun. Lydia would come with me when I made the movies and we would laugh about it all. 
Now she doesn't want to leave the kids, and she doesn't need me to be there. The kids miss me, but they're fine. It gets a whole lot more complicated when you have kids. Yeah, it's scary. It's the most terrifying day of your life, the day the first one is born. Yeah, nobody ever tells you that. Your life, as you know it, is gone. Never to return. But they learn how to walk and they learn how to talk and and you want to be with them. And they turn out to be the most delightful people you will ever meet in your life. So this scene takes place, of course, after a long night of talking when Bill Murray's disaffected movie star and Scarlett Johansson's disenchanted young wife are drifting off to sleep. At that moment, she unloads this really what's a a desperate question for her. Jeff's voicemail pretty much nails what makes the moment great. But another listener, Peterson Hill, he added a bit more on my Larson on Film Facebook page that I wanted to share. He wrote... The way Coppola frames the scene is beautiful, with much of it occurring in that single shot from the bird's eye view. She captures the humanity and the secret longing that makes this her finest film. And rewatching Lost in Translation just a couple days ago, I remember hoping that that bird's eye view shot mm-hmm. would sustain. And she does have to cut eventually, mm-hmm. whether it was her aesthetic choice or because of something in the performances to a more traditional side by side shot. But for that overhead view, because you get to see some of those performance gestures that Jeff was talking about. It's really a lovely moment. So that's my pick for my number two. Does it get easier from Lost in Translation? Well, that brings us to our number one picks. Angelica, what did you end up going with there? I went with Lost in Translation, partially because I rewatched it rather recently and was really struck by certain moments. And I'm going to highlight the ending between Bill Murray's character and Scarlett Johansson and the whole unheard whisper mm-hmm. thing, because I think it sort of captures a lot of my issues and interest with Coppola at the same time. Okay. And I think she sometimes has an issue with mistaking opacity for complexity. Ah. And I think that comes across a lot with that one moment and people's also obsession with figuring out like what he whispered in her ear, which in my opinion doesn't matter at this point. Yeah, I would agree. There's also something about their kiss that sort of throws me off now. And I think partially is because just how young Scarlett Johansson is. Mm. I mean, she was younger than I am right now. And so it sort of changes the tenor of the relationship for me as a woman. So that ending sort of got under my skin, I think, in the wrong way. Huh. And so sometimes I feel Coppola's perspective, instead of seeming light and beautiful, can curdle. Yeah. That's fascinating because having rewatched it, I had the same reaction how young Scarlett Johansson was. And also, it was much less platonic on this viewing than in my memory. Same. But the movie obviously has not changed. I have. I don't know if I've seen Lost in Translation since it first came out in, what, 03. I agree. So, you know, I'm at a different age. I, you know, so I have a daughter who is closer to 
Scarlett Johansson's age in that movie now, when I first saw it, I was probably, I'd have to do the math, closer to her age. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So yeah. you're seeing it almost from a peer's perspective to now maybe the Bill Murray perspective. And when I was younger, I remember admiring how platonic it was, how cool it was that that could be this relationship, this mentor relationship could be. And now I see that there's more. there was more going on there, at least through my current lens, than what I had thought initially. The kiss is part of that. I think in the scene that I picked, the way there's that one gesture towards her foot that, yes, ends in padding, mm-hmm. but that's very intimate to go for someone's bare foot. And you may, you may end it with a pat, like a fatherly pat. But the fact that you went there in the first, there's, it's, and I'm not saying this makes it a better or worse movie, that I like it more or less. It's just fascinating to me how I'm viewing it differently. And, you know, it sounds like you're on the fence a little bit about whether the unheard whisper is ultimately a positive thing or how much is actually there. But I think it does speak to this willingness to let lost in translation be whatever you want it to be, Mm. which is interesting in Coppola's career, too, because we keep talking about how specific she is in her character's points of view. Yet this one stands a little bit apart where we're not always sure what they're thinking. As intimate as the movie is and as much as it captures that sense of dislocation, Mm. there's a lot left up to us. And the fact that it opened up other things to me on this reviewing makes it it's why it's still my favorite film of hers. Oh, I definitely agree. Rewatching it just a few days ago as well, I was struck by how romantic parts of it felt sure. and intimate in a way that crossed a line that I was just like, this could, I was expected scenes to go differently, even though I was like, I know I've seen this right, movie. Yeah. It's not uh-huh. going to go in this direction. But it, but you're right. We do bring a lot of ourselves to what we watch. And that totally affects our viewing and how we interpret things, even over the course of time. I yeah. definitely agree. And I can't think of another film that I've experienced that so starkly mm. as with this revisit of Lost in Translation. So despite all the love for Lost in Translation, it didn't land at my number one spot. I actually went for a scene from Marie Antoinette at number one. It's the shoes and cakes montage. I just love all the anachronistic music in this movie in general. You've got Susie and the Banshees. You've got The Cure. You've got New Order. And then you have Bow Wow's I Want Candy, which anchors this montage. <laughs> Kirsten Dunst's queen here. She's playing dress up all while indulging in cakes and champagne. So this movie was such a bold experiment, very controversial, not without its issues. Mm. We've already touched on it in our Beguiled review, but I can't help but admire what she went for here. This is maybe the starkest example of Coppola taking a massive story and looking at it through the narrowest of lenses. But when she captures that experience, that moment in that mood, when Mm -hmm. she does it so ecstatically as she does here, you know, what it would be like to have the whole world at your feet and the endless shoes to put them in, I just, I find the experience exhilarating that she's able to do that. So I think that probably the shoes and cakes montage is my number one because only Coppola would consider the story of Marie Antoinette and come up with a scene like this. So number one for me. That's a really good number one pick. I actually really love that montage scene. Also, it's just so fun and buoyant and like, and distinctive and I think as much as I am usually a bit colder on Coppola, I do really appreciate how she really goes for 
just really goes for it, even if I don't agree with what it happens to be a lot of times. And I think Marie Antoinette is a good example of that because she does not care about historical reality. She's just creating this mood and presence and energy that feels very much like a young girl getting power she does not know what to do with. So those are our five picks. Do you want to share a couple others that you considered? I have a few here. The Whisper was definitely in the running Mm -hmm. for me. The karaoke scene also from Lost in Translation. That's one where we just get, I think, that moment, that (laughs) exact moment is captured so well that you're right there with them. Really that whole night, that kind of bleary wandering through Tokyo Mm -hmm. night, I think she does well. And then I had one more that almost made the list. It's going back to the Virgin Suicides. There's this montage of the boys the neighborhood boys getting up the courage to call the Lisbon sisters, but they only communicate by playing <laughs> records. And then they call them back. So this goes back and forth. A listener on Twitter, uh, Hot Dog Thursday, suggested this one as well. It says, this is where the boys and the Lisbon girls communicate through records. It's a mix of joy, desire, melancholy, and mystery. And I think that captures that scene pretty well. Yeah. Did you have any others that you thought about? I actually about? really do like that scene from The Virgin Suicides. Also because it just feels like so high school <laughs> in a totally. lot of ways. Oh, totally. The technology may change, yeah. but just rewatching it, I was just like, oh, this is so weird. The awkwardness and, yeah. and yet the excitement of it. And then, yeah. The sincerity, the earnestness. Oh, yes. Oh, it's just, it was a little intense rewatching, partially because uh, my... 10-year high school reunion is this year. Are you going? Hell no. (laughs) (laughs) But I just, it made me think about high school and how I never want to return. Yeah. Better left (laughs) in the past. Any other moments you considered? I just wanted to highlight how struck I was re-watching Marie Antoinette. I was kind of cool on it the first time Mm -hmm. I saw it which was around the time it came out, so I haven't seen it for a while. And it's so interesting watching it next to The Beguiled and see how much she's grown and is pushing herself in a really interesting direction as an actress. So I just wanted to highlight that. I think someone should write a piece about Sofia Coppola, Kirsten Dunst, and their collaborations together. Very rich collaborative experiences. I think that someone should be you. It probably will be. We'll look for that. (laughs) For now, though... That is the show. Thank you so much, Angelica, for doing this. It was fun once again. Hope to have you back for another rich topic. If you are interested in hearing Angelica previously on Film Spotting, where we did review Suicide Squad and shared our top five women comic book characters done right, you can find that at filmspotting.net in the archives. While you're there, why don't you vote in that film spotting poll? We mentioned earlier the best film of 2017 so far. Let us know which one you think it is. Also, if you haven't already, please do check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts. We've got two other shows in our little family here, The Next Picture Show and Film Spotting SVU. You can find both of those in Apple Podcasts or through your preferred podcast app. Out in limited release this weekend is The Beguiled. More people will get a chance to see it finally now. Also, limited release for The Big Sick getting good reviews, and we had an interview, Adam did, with the star and co-screenwriter, Kumail Nanjiani. That is available at filmspotting.net. They just talked last week. That's the big sick. Out in wide release, Despicable Me 3, more Minions, The House with 
Amy Poehler, and Will Ferrell, and then the Angelica Jade Bastien recommended Baby Driver from Edgar Wright. That's what Adam and I will review next week. Baby Driver, Angelica, will we be able to find your thoughts anywhere on the film? Are you reviewing it or writing about it? Or where can we find your stuff in general? Because you're always up to something interesting. (laughs) Well, in regards to Baby Driver, I did not write a straight review, but I did write a piece I'm very proud of about John Hamm as an actor. And I feel he usually coasts, but I was very, very impressed with his scuzzy, thwarted, somewhat sadistic take on a villain that would not be out of place in an old school 50s noir from Baby Driver. All right. We'll check that out. Is that already? It's at Vulture. So we'll link to that. Where can folks follow you? I know you're active on Twitter. Too active. (laughs) I'm far too active on Twitter as Angelica Bastien. So just my first and my last name and you'll find me. Uh, Beyond that, I am a contributing writer for Vulture. They get pretty much everything I write. So if you're looking for me, go to Vulture. Awesome. Thanks again for being on. This was fun, and we'll have to do it again in the future. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board as well. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Now you threw me off there. Were you were you channeling who you said you were yes, going to channel? Oh, yes. I'm sorry. I didn't. I didn't Apparently recognize. Apparently, she's just as scuzzy as fucking. Like I'm channeling her. Sorry, but I'm channeling. Rewind that. <laughs> oh god. All right. Just a side note that can be cut out. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I'm channeling Dorothy when she talks to Rose, which actually sounds a lot like because <laughs> she's so annoyed. Okay. All right. <laughs> Film spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.